Greetings, dear listener. I'm Ian McKenzie, one of the co-hosts of this live series, The Pandemic is a Prism, which aims to bring a mythopoetic lens to bridge divided worldviews. This series of 12 conversations ran from Maybon in September to the solstice in late December 2021. Each week, listeners were able to join my co-host Zamir Danji and I live alongside our guests for an emergent session that explored the pandemic from a multitude of angles. After each session, Zamir and I recorded a recap to harvest the key insights. We are now happy to release the entire series as a podcast, available to all as a gift. If you would like to access the original videos of the conversations, as well as order the forthcoming book, head over to agatheringofstories.com slash pandemic to learn more. And now, enjoy this session of The Pandemic is a Prism.
what would it take to free your mind, to allow it to see these big patterns again? All the ancestors up here, they left their traces in the earth and waters below as well. And you carry those traces within, those memories and knowledges and deep, deep love. Those things wait for you below. They tug at you, begin to draw you down. You are no longer light, but not heavy either. You are in balance and you return to your place of love below. point of connection between the earth and sky camp so go be that you drop plummet through stars and darkness and blue black and deep blue and light blue and maybe clouds and water drops and treetops and ceilings and then softly 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 settle back down down to earth into the feeling of your place and your body the rhythm that never stops, the fire in your belly, your power, and the infinite potential of your mind within and without. Brothers Mirror. Thank you. Mm. It's good to be here once again for our next session in the Pandemic is a Prism series. And um, I, of course, am Ian McKenzie, co founder, steward of this journey. And Zamir, once again, is joining me here. Um, yeah. And this, uh, I believe, number six, session six in our journey so mm. far. Mm. And uh, what a rich journey it's been. Uh, I am very excited to welcome our next guest onto uh, the scene here with us. And I should say that those words that I just read over Samir's beautiful playing are actually from his book, Sand Talk, How Indigenous Wisdom Can Save the World. And I'll say a few things about the book before we invite uh, Tyson on, which is there, Samir's got his copy. <laughs> and uh, a few things to say is one that uh, I've actually, I've read this book over about six months. Uh, since I first acquired it, after hearing about it from multiple sources. And, um, and as I began reading it, I found it so deceptively disorganizing in the best ways that I actually had to read it in you know, chapter by chapter and actually spend time with each chapter uh, because I didn't want to get in the, the consumer mind of just you know, getting through it and, and feeling like I'd 
learn something. I wanted to have it, wanted the book to have its way with me. Uh, and I feel like it has enough now to be able to, to have this conversation uh, with Tyson, who's going to join us very shortly. Um, but for me, it was each, yeah, each chapter is like a gateway into a, a different way of knowing uh, or learning or understanding that is, um, I think, deeply necessary and vital in these times. And I know Zamir, based actually on this conversation happening, went and also acquired the book uh, very recently. And again, I'd just love a brief bit on uh, what was the impact on you. I, w what, what, I, what really struck me was not just the, that the book was written, it was the way in which it was written. Like I felt even the beginning language of, of us too, there was a sense of inclusiveness that I was sort of invited in to the to the exploration and to the conversation it wasn't something that was sort of outside of me it was meant to sort of come into me and i felt that as i was i was in this book because it could be territory like when you're talking about some of the depth of what what what's being explored and these different ways of approaching knowledge and knowledge systems it could be very cerebral uh, but i found that it was actually very rooted in 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 my heart it felt very grounded and um it it allowed me to appreciate things that I've heard kind of tokenized around indigenous knowledge and indigenous wisdom, because I'm more outside of um, that, that discourse, I felt like this book really brought me into it. And I was, I really appreciated that. And he, he emphasized that it's really more about the process than just the content alone. And I felt like this book helped me understand the process of what it's like to arrive at these ways of knowing. And that was wonderful. Hmm. Beautiful. Well, then I'm delighted to welcome Tyson to the to the floor here with us. Welcome Tyson. Hey, how you going? Mm. I understand it's um it's morning there in uh, Melbourne <clears throat> area for you. It is. It is. It's morning. Morning in Melbourne. Mm. Which is like uh, you know, the the anus of Australia. It's a <laughs> horrendous little metropolis. Mm. Mm. I think we've got about a third of the people on the continent are all crammed in a little boxes here. It's wow. insane. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you, you need, you do, it does require certain fascistic sort of responses to things like pandemics, etc. cetera, <laughs> um, in order to keep everybody safe and secure, I guess. Mm. Well, this is this theme we'll touch on. I mean, both, I mean, pandemics and also safety. Um, but I'd love to get a brief window. You know, last time we spoke actually was for the Mythic Masculine podcast, which we did. I think it was over a year ago right now that uh, that we spoke and, you know, you were taught you. Yeah, you spoke about what had been going on for you then at the time. Uh, I remember you speaking. You felt very disconnected. It felt like from, yeah. from your people, from your relationships. And, and, you know, maybe we also thought it'd be over by now. And yet here we are. And based on the, the, the news reports that at least we get over here in North America, you know, Australia is either a sort of success in terms of lock, lockdown or it's a you know, Alcatraz or something on Matt. Like, it's really hard to know from the outside. And I just love to get a window into what, what it's like on the ground there for you. Yeah. It's only one of those two things. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, I don't know. It's a mixed bag, you know, uh, at the personal level, it's, you know, it's been really hard. I think I wasn't coping very well last time I talked to you. Uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, at the same time, um, you know, I have raised a lot of kids, mm. so I've, I've grown up about twelve different kids, and um, and two two of those are my you know flesh and blood kids who are now you know in their twenties. Mm. 
and you know I never really I never really got to be a parent for them I wasn't able to be a parent I was just a father you know Mm. (laughs) which means you know you get home at six o'clock and you get a couple of hours with them you know Mm. in the evening and then you just sort of shout at them at the weekend when you're trying to get your life maintenance tasks done and, and they're getting in the way. Um, <laughs> yeah. So and it has, it has been good to actually be a parent mm. to, to have that cognitive load of, you know, 24 seven, you know, our children at you, which is why we're starting late today because, mm. you know, of course they decided to just wake up at exactly eight thirty. Mm. <laughs> when i'm supposed to be starting yeah mm. well, thanks if you're for the only one awake then then you're on deck so yeah that's it yeah it's kind of like everything else takes a back seat um, yeah yeah and it's i don't know it, it has been it's been um you know it's been good to experience that to actually be ah oh, this is what it is to be an actual parent mm. you know to try and be a village for um, a child when there is no village mm. and yeah mm. That, that hits home for me. I mean, I have a three-year-old now, you know, my son, and uh, that, that, that a lot of how one's life is reorganized. I mean, and, and that distinction between parent and father, I think actually I'm, I'm appreciating you making that. Um, mm. So it seems like the time has, has, has sort of offered up the possibility of being present in a way that was perhaps more difficult in yeah. the past. <clears throat> That's it. Mm. Well, so, um, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's just, it, 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 I think that, that the theme has just emerged right from the start of that, you know, that idea that there's these, you know, two of opposing viewpoints on, on a topic kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, and, but maybe there's more to it than that. But I mean, that, that come out in the flute, the double yeah. flute at the start there. You know? <laughs> yeah, well, that's beautiful that when they come yeah. together, when you see them together, when they're blended together, there's a rich amount of overtones in there. Um, yeah, that's it that's uh, that's the idea to pick up some of those overtones together in the conversation i mean we talked about this we use the word prism pandemic is a prism because you know a mm. prism when, when light hits it as you turn it you're seeing different refractions right so mm. you know one of the i think intentions is hoping you know we bring on certain guests that is going to help to see what that refraction is because they're shining mm. you know their light through that prism um and and that's how i felt looking at through the book i felt like i was i was looking at different like refractions actually mm. a, a multiple reflections at different chapters. Sometimes that was a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, I feel like, is there, is there a way in which we could um, approach this subject uh, where we, 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 we look at it more process oriented, you know, um, in terms of how we understand what's happening in this pandemic. Because the thing is, is that it's brought up so many things up to the surface. It's not just about a virus anymore. It's, it's mm. it really showed a lot of things to us. Imagine mm. you've seen it the same way. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, it's, it's sort of, I don't know, it's going forward thinking about, well, you know, how, how, how is the world going to work? I mean, it's not, uh, it's not going to be able to be the same thing, you know, that, um, you know, if you looked at just the airlines and just the impact on the airlines, like that would be enough to change everything. But, you know, it's changed absolutely everything. The, what this next generation is going to be like, mm. you know, my little two-year-old son who's, you know, never met another kid. Um, mm. 
and just has has no idea how you would interact with another person who's not you know one of the people in this house um Mm. and you know and he's and he's struggling with that (laughs) even you know so i mean what's um what are the pathologies that will be coming up for those people Mm. for that generation you know Mm. so you know he 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 still he still can't say hello or um he still can't say yes or no or anything like that um but he can count to 10. <laughs> hmm. he can what count to 10 you? and do do one-to-one correspondence on his fingers ah, and show you the number right. and say them mm-hmm. um but he can't say yes or no um he doesn't understand that <laughs> you know it's um uh, I, it's it's just uh, i think this is going to be an interesting you know bunch of people but here's the thing it's um you know there are sort of evolutionary pressures in in you know any given context so it's it's a landscape of pressures going on so from the indigenous point of view it's always that uh that big context that you're responding to and you're mutating you know within that context always you know so um you kind of watch that and you see the signs and you try to see, well, you know, uh, where are those little pathologies going? Where are those mutations going? Uh, where are they taking us? And what's the what's the appropriate response to that? Mm. And usually the appropriate response is wait for a bit and watch, um, observe, be very aware and <laughs> and respond accordingly. You know, mm-hmm. because, um, you know, I'm usually in a self-organizing system you know, will create its own uh, kind of immunity, immune response, will will, will adapt through phase shifts, you know, towards a, some kind of homeostasis that you can't even imagine. Um, you know, all these, uh, you know, mutations don't happen as singular things with one species or one process or whatever. You know, um, a virus is a process. It's not exactly a, like a little being it's not an organism it's it's a process it's like yeah. an algorithm or something you know um and these mm. processes they um they're never singular they're always attached out to everything else and you're seeing if you're seeing one species mutate then you're seeing basically that'll be collective you know um pressures right across the system you know there's mm. evolutionary pressures happening you know, where right across the entire the entire system, stuff that you can't even imagine, and you know, is going on. Mm. You know, things you might think are emergent, but they're actually you're only just starting to see them, <laughs> mm. and you might not see them at all. You don't want to tinker too much in there if you if you do big powerful interventions, you know, into a system like that. You tend to um, uh, disrupt that process. Mm-hmm. So this is really interesting, actually. Yeah, Tyson, if I might read, uh, there's a quote in your opening uh, of the book, which for me sort of framed somewhat of this discussion and mm-hmm. in some ways mentioning or, or touches upon this time, maybe unawares, uh, but there's a pattern to the universe and everything in it. And there are knowledge systems and traditions that follow this pattern to maintain balance, to keep the temptations of narcissism in check. But recent traditions have emerged that break down creation systems like a virus infecting complex patterns with artificial simplicity, exercising a civilizing control over what some see as chaos. For me, that's very prescient. Um, I mean, not just because you mentioned the word virus, but 
in some ways because it seems that the the dominant response to a threat in this case you know of the coronavirus seems to be very monocultured right a sort of mono monotheistic response of trying to control right this chaotic um form that has come among us and in many ways i feel like that's i mean it's it feels like more of the same of course for that a culture that seems to only know how to respond to things that way to, mm -hmm. to threats that way in a sort of monotheistic uh, response. And so I guess my, my question and an overarching curiosity in this conversation is how might, like you said, an indigenous knowledge system be applied, you know, to understand the complexities. I mean, you're already doing it now, but for me, like mm -hmm. that's really where it, as a practical application, you know, can, can, can really show some beauty. Yeah. It's the only, it's, it's just not very satisfying. There's not a lot of, um, short-term satisfaction or outcomes to show, mm -hmm. um, you know, from applying an, an indigenous knowledge system. Um, it's, they're, they're just, they're just, aren't. Yeah. you're not going to be able to show something on the spreadsheet and go, oh, look, we've had a 20% gain over here or like, <laughs> you know, we've flattened this curve over there. It's, um, it, it just doesn't have, you know, indigenous knowledge doesn't have, have applications like that. So it's it's really disappointing, but it, it doesn't. It's quite, you know, slow tech, but it's that's because it's whole systems tech and, you mm. know, that takes some doing. Uh, it also takes some, you know, understanding what your ecological niche is and being in it, you know. Um, it's a pretty impressive ecological niche we have. So I guess, well, my proposition in the book is that our ecological niche for our species is that we're, uh, we're the custodial species. You know, that we have the capacity to be in parallel with all other niches and, um, you know, to walk alongside those things and guide them. Um, but basically, we're not increasing the size of the system, we're increasing complexity and connected connectivity, you know, within those systems um, in ways that strengthen the system that um, um, basically in ways that kind of offset entropy. You know, because, you know, things do break down over time. Uh, they break down pretty quick in enclosures. You know, that's the second law of thermodynamics. If you try to make a vacuum, then, you know, your complexity will break down really quickly. But, um, you know, in vast sort of interconnected systems, you've got always these trade-offs happening. The entropy of this system sort of migrates to that system. And, and that's usually that system's lunch over there. Mm like the system of your body, your kaka when it comes out, that, that, that will fertilize these plants over here. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, um, you know, we have all that. But then at the same time, any system inevitably breaks down. There is some, um, as a custodial species, you get, to, um, you get to maintain homeostasis within a system for a longer time because you are constantly, uh, you know, bringing that ceremony, that ritual of increase, into your method of inquiry for that system to know all the little things that you need to do across all the other ecological niches to um, invigorate those things. So uh, what what is interesting as you were talking about that is that it, it appears that what has made us very vulnerable in this pa pandemic mm. is the fact that we have become so interconnected in all these human yeah. systems around the world. I mean, everything's yeah. affecting everything else, as you said. If it was just the airlines alone, that would already make a huge impact. But yeah. all these things have been impacted, and people have been able to travel all around the world. 
And so maybe while we're getting more and more interconnected because of our growth mindset, our economy, our whatever this dominant worldview, mm. we don't have the knowledge systems or the cultural systems in place to actually deal with disruptions or to actually yeah. handle the complexity that we've invited in as a species. And what yeah. can the indigenous way of thinking teach us about it? Because they've been talking about this for a long time, it seems. Yeah. Well, you know, it's um, it's not it's not wizardry and it's not perfect either. You know, we, we make mistakes. <laughs> also, um, and I can tell you a bit of a story about that. that that's, you know, it'll probably take about five minutes of monologue. Um, I'll try and compress it down. But basically, this was, uh, it was over 10 years ago. You know, geez, it must have been, must have been around 2000. It was, it was before 2010. Yeah. yeah, before 2010, um, or around there somewhere. Anyway, it was about a decade ago. Um, but there were big uh, floods in Brisbane happening at that time. And there were all these floods. And um, um, I had to get, I had to drive from about 2,000 kilometers. I had to drive from, um, you know, way out near this place called Walgut in Western New South Wales. And I had to drive right up to the top of Queensland. Um, which is a big dog leg like this, <laughs> um, and I had to I had to get get there ahead of the flood because and and often I'm driving along and the and the flood waters are just closing behind me on the road in the rear view mirror you can see them coming across the road you know so I'm like right ahead of this flood um, it was huge it was everywhere was flooding uh, but Brisbane particularly got really badly flooded those in Queensland but I was way west of that um, because I was tracking this um, story of mutation. So I was following, you know, so our stories are like in the landscape, you know, as these sort of song lines, some people call them, but they're narrative paths that just sort of crisscross all through the landscape. And I was following a few of those narrative paths, um, looking into, I was like trying to get down to the deeper lore of the sort of force multipliers in evolution. And I was looking at, well, how can a platypus have, you know, duck and water rat DNA? You know, how does something like that happen, that kind of mutation? And so I was way out at like Narran Lake, like where that story begins, you know, where it was um, a water rat did something terrible to a duck, you know. And then I follow all that story of that mother duck all the way along, finished up out of Bathurst and Orange. Um, there, uh, Bathurst is where they have this big famous sort of car race in Australia where they all drive around a mountain which is a really sacred site. <laughs> it's an awful thing they do driving around that mountain. But anyway, there, so, you know, I went and there's a, a place there, a rock where she died, the mother duck. And then all the, all the babies went out from there. And that's a lot of different song lines. So they go south, they go north, but I was following the dog lick of that one going right all the way up to the rainforest, right up the top in that volcanic landscape where there was an apocalypse about 10,000 years ago. Um, yeah, 10,000 years ago, that old place changed. There was a big volcanic eruption. Everything was just completely wiped out. And then a rainforest came up. And so that rainforest is only 10,000 years old. And there's a platypus dreaming site there. And that's where that song line ends. So that's where I was headed. I was supposed to drive straight up. But then I get this phone call. You know, I'm ahead, going ahead of the floodwaters and then I get to high ground and I'm all good. And this old, old, old girl, she called me up and she's like, um, oh boy, you know, all the elders are getting sick there in Brisbane. They're getting this respiratory 
respiratory illness. You know, it's because of um, there's sick things happening in the mangroves because of that 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 flood. There's all this bad stuff has been brought up in the mangroves. You know, historically, it's been disturbed. All these burials and all these things there from the floodwaters. It's out there at hand. She give me like directions for the shape of the mangrove along the coast there where I got to follow and go to this certain place. And she's like, oh, it's the bats there. There's something, something going on with the bats and they're interacting somehow with something they shouldn't be interacting with. And you got her here and she give me these words that I had to say in her language. I had to call out and, and make the bats move on, you know? So I had to drive out of my way to go there, um, which is really annoying. But yeah, so after that flood, there were all these um, Aboriginal elders, you know, around Brisbane, they were getting really sick and some of them were dying from respiratory, like their lungs just filling up, you know. And anyway, so I went there and and and, and I, I found the place and then I looked across the road and there was a big sign there, it was all these horses and it was like, oh, the Hendra um, horse stud. And I'm like, oh, Hendra, that's where the Hendra virus started. And Hendra virus, you know, which sort of mutated into like Lyssa virus and all these other things. Hendra virus was like this rabies for fruit bats, mm. you know, and so that rabies started up there. And, and, and I remember reading it started up at, at a horse stud in Hendra. That's why they call it the Hendra virus. And I'm looking at this stud and I'm like, and it's on one side of the highway <laughs> there, um, you know, and that highway goes right up, right up to the top. That's the one I'm following. And that highway was built on an old trade route that was a song line. That was a um, rainbow snake song line. You know, so that was the path that I was going to be following. <laughs> so I'm looking on one side of that song line, you've got all those horses there. And then across on the other side, it's mangroves there. And there were millions of bats, like more bats than I've ever seen, you know, more bats than there should be because they should have in that season, they should have moved on already and started migrating but they were all hanging around there that mangroves you know yeah. and so you know i went across there and, and i called out the words i was supposed to call out and they just went <laughs> took off and boom and they started flying north you know um yeah and it, it was just awful there, there was just <laughs> it was just spiritually there were awful things going on there and so i think well there's my job done and i i drove drove roll away up to Coranda and I got my mind back on that platypus and the mutations. And so then I arrived there, Coranda, and I got settled in camping there. And I was there about a week and, and I was listening to the radio one morning and, and, and they said, ah, oh, you know, Hendra virus has, has arrived in Coranda. <laughs> Hendra virus is spread here. So like for the first time that virus had, had gone, north to that place so for the first time hendra virus had arrived there and i was just i just oh uh, I, I was i i had trouble for a few months after that because i was just geez what have i done mm. you know I was, i'd followed the instructions of an elder you know and i felt like i'd done all the right thing and you know and with the, all the right conversations that happened and the yarns and you know, all the elders have got and decided to do that. And that was the best thing to do. And, you know, seeing the entire systems and everything like that. But then there's this knock on effect of there's all these rabies bats now up in that platypus place because <laughs> they followed me up there, you know. Um, 
you know, because I didn't know enough to say the right words or do the right ritual to cut that off, you know, there so they didn't follow me there. Um, you know, so you got to be careful. You got to be really careful with these things. You can, um, if you intervene in a system, even if you know all of that system, then, you know, the intervention was purely we need to save all these old people in Brisbane. And it worked because they stopped getting sick. You know, <clears throat> I had that, I got that phone call a couple of weeks later. Yeah, all old people are fine now. The respiratory illness is gone. <clears throat> and there you go. But I got heaps more bad story to tell you as we go along for um for <laughs> respiratory <laughs> respiratory wow. business but um yeah like i don't know we you get these things arise these pathologies are kind of like comorbidities with um doing the wrong thing with nature you know so if your landscape's unhealthy then pathologies will be thrown up you know if you're messing with landscapes and ecologies and you're not you're not looking after all those ecological niches and making sure that they're not just healthy, but, you know, multiplying. <clears throat> if you're not doing that work, then, you know, those species are going to be throwing up things that will change you mm -hmm. and either remove you from the equation or put you back into a proper relation with your environment. You know, That's, um, that was a fascinating story, Tyson. Ian, I don't know if as you were listening to it, you felt, you know, by, by the end, even that parallel of um, in trying to protect one group and try to and to the best of your ability with the knowledge that, you know, it yeah. causes an outcome and effect for another, which is what we're seeing the same in, in the way we're responding to viruses today. And it's maybe it's not something to blame. It's just <clears throat> that's just how we are. We're infallible. We're, we're fallible. It's best yeah. to think we know the system. And this is the. Yeah this is a solution to protect these. It's going to create, something's going to poke out somewhere else. And yeah, that's part of, I don't know if you were that's hearing it. that too. Yeah. So then you've got these, these poor little settler kids, you know, up North going, Oh, mammy, look at the baby bed. He's so fairy and cute. <laughs> and little kids getting scratched up and bitten, getting bat rabies. It's terrible. Mm. Just awful. <laughs> that was my fault. Mm. You know, <laughs> every time I heard a report of another kid getting bit, I was just like, ah, I did that. So you got to look out with these interventions. You think you're going to, ah, <laughs> and I guess public health is like that. Public health is like, you know, trying to figure out a one size fits all solution, yeah. you know, for everybody, which it, you know, that's not wrong. I mean, that's, of course, that's what you have to do if you have created these nations, you know. And that, that's, that system of, of human organization is only about a century old. We didn't have, we didn't have nations, you know, um, in the 1800s. <laughs> nations arose like towards the end of the 1800s and in the early 1900s. It's a very young system and uh, it's, a, it's a novel system and it's a novel technology, novel response, and it doesn't work um, <laughs> very well. It's not very agile. You know, it's not very nuanced. You can't respond within bioregions and, you know, have diverse responses for different communities. It's one size fits all, you know. Mm. If people are dying of melanomas, then, you know, that's everybody's got to wear a hat, you know. Mm. I don't wear a hat. Yeah. <laughs>
That's a, actually, that's interesting um, metaphor you just offered there as well. Um, you know, one of the things I'd love to, well, first, just to comment on the people watching now, you know, who are tuned in. And if you want to leave your comments and questions, you know, in the, in the chat field as well, we can try to weave them in throughout our time. Um, in terms of this, uh, the, the challenge of being able to navigate multiple perspectives on, you know, what's happening and what to do about it. Mm. This is something that has felt really, uh, you know, volatile within the public sphere. Um, yeah. You know, that, that there's this talk of this great divide, right, between sides. And even, even within, quote, the sides, there's lots of nuance. But you made a point in the book by saying uh, there's always value in marginal viewpoints. Mm. Right? There's this idea that I, I think, which is, you know, each carries uh, some sort of necessary or maybe missed blind spot. Um, and I wonder, like, what is it? Is it the practice of yarning, you know, as you've talked about? as a yeah. way of actually being able to sit and listen and, and in, in what fashion, because I also see this often butt up against this idea of, you know, safety and public health means, you know, it's this way and everybody's got to get on board with this way or, yeah. you know, or else. And so I, I just wonder one about the practice of yarning, like, is that a kind yeah. of useful? Well, it, it comes into exactly what you're just referring to, you know, with that, with the safety thing, um, um, you know, in terms of, you know, it's that, it's that uh, forced choice. That we all have to make it's like well am i gonna put the interests of the individual first or of the collective and the collective in a nation and millions of people you know maybe billions of people and it's like well you know i have to sacrifice this for the sake of the billions you know and uh or you know i gotta give up this freedom or i've got to take this risk and roll this dice you know in order that you know the greater probability of everybody you know being well um, is going to, you know, uh, the aggregate of that is going to turn out in everybody's favor, even if it messes me up, you know, uh, it's this, you know, and it's always this forced choice between that uh, interest of the collective and the interest of the uh, individual. And I guess in our way, we don't have that, you know, we don't have those binaries. We have more what anthropologists call dyads. You know, it's, um, you know, freshwater, saltwater, these are opposite things, but we don't see them that way. They're, they're dynamic, interactive things that produce, you know, really um, beautiful things happening in creation in various seasons and all that sort of thing. So it's, um, you know, autonomy and, um, you know, mutuality, they're, they're, not, they're not exclusive, you know, they're not opposite things. So you are, you know, at the same time, nobody, nobody's your boss. You're a self-determining sovereign entity, but at the same time, you're completely bound in dense social relationships and relational obligations and protocols, you know, <laughs> these, so these balance you, you know, so I guess that's the thing. Um, you know, th that's the thing we, you have to have binaries in these big nations. You know, you have to have those forced choices. Um, yeah, it, it is um, it is really tricky. We, we try really hard to assert these things and we try really hard to keep these things going, but we're also living within these nations. And, um, you know, so for, you know, most of us, it's a, it's a, it's a constant tension. And, yeah. Well, there's something, Zemir, if I might actually just follow the thread. You know, you, you also make a case or you, you articulate the difference between engagement and compliance. Which yeah, I thought was very interesting. Um, and I wonder, again, within this conversation, how might mm. that be used to, 
you know, how might you distinguish between those things, uh, you know, in, in this question of safety and mutuality and all the rest? Yeah, um, it, it is really interesting. So, I mean, engagement, and I guess we'll come back to, this will tie back into your other questions, and I guess we're, we're going to have to think about, you know, some of the problematics of, you know, the responses around the place, but even the ones who are seeking to do heterodox thinking and all that kind of thing. Um, yeah. Um, I don't know. It's it's, re <laughs> it, it's really tricky. Hang on. Ask me the question again. I just lost it. I just lost my the, thread. What's the difference between and how do you articulate engagement or compliance? Engagement compliance. Right. Yeah. And that's because it, it's yeah. alive in this question of safety, right? And, and protecting, you know, yourself it's, and the other. It is really tricky. You know, I trick my kids all the time and you, you give them false choices. You know, we learned this from the PR industry and <laughs> the sort of, you know, mass manufacturing consent that you need for great nations. It's like, you know, um, you know, do you want the whole apple or do you want me to cut it up? It's not like, are you going to, you know, do you want to eat an apple? It's like, well, you can have the apple or you can have it cut up. It's like, you're going to eat the freaking apple, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And I, I keep seeing this in like all the propaganda on every side, on everybody's weird take on COVID, even from the, ah, oh, my favorite is the Panspermia Institute, man. Um, you know, Panspermia, the idea that there's life in the universe and it spreads around on asteroids and stuff like that. Uh -huh. Yeah. Well, the, the, and, the, and I, there was just this like pretend news video it was like, it was set up like a newsroom. You know, going, oh, this just didn't, you know, the, you know, COVID, COVID came from outer space. It came from outer space on an asteroid. Don't take the vaccine because of the asteroid. And it's like, what the? F <laughs> anyway, um, but they were, they didn't say it like that. They were, it was like a whole, you know, it was all this series of, of pretend forks in a, a not decision tree. Mm -hmm. to lead people down and in each fork you're like whoa i'm choosing <laughs> like and it's all going to arrive at you know covid came from outer space and i'm not taking the vaccine <laughs> and all the propaganda is the same whether you're like a weird you know it's like a warden of this is dr johnson he he knows what he's talking about he better he's a doctor of asteroids <laughs> i'm gonna take my my health advice from he's a doctor He's a doctor. Um, they're all doctors. Jesus, I'm a doctor. Don't listen to me. I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's the weird. Okay, so, so you know, like I keep hearing on my podcasts, you know, the, the, when I'm listening, that this, this ad keeps coming up with like, you know, you know, um, you know, what will your reason be for taking the vaccine? <laughs> what will your reason be for getting vaccinated? So it's like, oh, you get to choose your reason. It's like, well, you know, uh, well, I can't wait to get back to kissing on my grandkids. And like, you know, I want to have parties and I want to go to her parties. <laughs> you know, and um, what will your reason be? Wow. Choose your reason. Choose your reason for having the vaccine. It's just like, oh, my God, they're doing the same thing. It's, it's, it's um, you know, these false choices all the time. It's like. And, you know, the same as I do to my kids when I want them to eat an apple because, you know, an apple a day and all that keeps yeah. the doctor away. <laughs> and I guess, I mean, that's got to bring you to the problem we're going to have to dig into of, um, you know, who do you trust? Who can you trust? Because you can't be an expert on everything. 
you know, you can't, and you know, you're not a data analyst or a, you know, a virologist. So which ones of those do you trust? You know, which one, which, which I'm going to choose my person who's going to be my expert and I'm going to just do what they say. Um, there's a lot of problems with that, but uh, yeah, we'll get to that yeah as well because that's part of the source of confusion in the space is everybody thinks they have to have a um you know a group of experts or an expert that is their mm. their brand of expert sort of lines up with their unique amazing intersectionalities or whatever the hell uh, is their basis for choosing stuff mm. well tyson this is really interesting then because right it does come to this um question right how do you know how do you know what you know or how do you know anything i mean how does one know anything? Um, yeah. Because, you know, in a, in a society or a social or an absence of mm. a certain kind of reliability, right, because of kinship ties or, or all these ways of, you know, how do we know what we know? Um, mm. You have near the end of the book, I think you actually articulate this really well, uh, or at least from, from your frame of the, I, I suppose, is this an indigenous way of knowing that there's four mm. criteria, right, that you talked about how you know something or how, you, how can you come to know or trust something? Um, mm. And I just wonder if you could articulate that a little bit, like how might, how do we apply some sort of practice of coming to arrive at meaning? That, that's right? just it. I mean, yeah. we don't have the computation power for that. Mm. Our species doesn't have it. Um, no species has it. But the aggregate of all the species together, they have it. So in our way, the land is sentient, which I guess if you're looking from a Western scientific perspective, it's like, all right, well, you know, a landscape and ecosystem, it's a dynamic self-organizing system and it's got all these nodes and they connect like neurons. And so I guess you could think of it as being an intelligent system because it does seem to, you know, throw up, you know, big sort of self-organized responses, um, you know, like immune responses, you know, in your body and things like that, you know, your system will do that. So for us, the land is sentient and, and that has the computation power uh, to be able to know where we're supposed to be going. And because we're in the landscape and we're embedded in it and we're of it and it's like the big parent, you know, then that's what you do. So constantly um, you're it's it's all about, um, you know, being in constant communication with your context. We'll call it context for, you know, in English, but you're in communication with the landscape, which is being in communication with your ancestors you know, human and non-human, you're in constant communication with these things. And that's not prayer or anything or like hearing voices like Joan of Arc, you know, <laughs> you're not doing that and receiving your special task or Dharma or bloody whatever you think, because you're not particularly that special. But as a group of people, <clears throat> you receive an aggregate of signals you know, this person saw that flock of birds behaving weirdly. This person saw two snakes going there. You know, the um, air pressure has changed. Um, <clears throat> this tree's flowering early this year. Um, the salmon run hasn't arrived yet. Um, so we're all sitting down together and going, hmm, you know, what's that land? What's that feeling we're getting? You know, so we're collectively interpreting uh, the landscape and hearing that signal and if you're embedded in the landscape then you know it's it becomes sort of automatic almost it's almost automated but then you've got your um, 
I know you, you've got your uh, actuaries there too, which is your elders who are like you know, you know, because the land is a uh, how the land thinks is a bit of a black box for most of us, but they kind of know what's going on in the black box and and so they have that authority of being able to say, yeah, well this happened about um, eight thousand three hundred thirty six years ago, same thing happened, uh, you know what I mean, um, and um, you know some people responded like this and. They all died, and then some people responded like this, and you know they thrived. So, and then everybody. So they 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 don't have the power of bossing everybody, but that's when everyone goes, okay. So all these signs and that elder knowledge, and then you know clearly our path is this, you know, and it sort of works like that. But you know the problem is that doesn't scale for a million people. You know you've got 150, 200 people, you know, responding according to that bioregion. You know, but then you've got this sort of collective of collectives, all those tribes and all those bioregions, they're doing their own thing in each place and they're self-determining, but then often there have to be collective things as well. You know, so um, <clears throat> there's kind of like the, there's bigger collections of like tribes of tribes, if that makes any sense. Well, so the governance, governance scales fractally, you know, across the whole continent like that. Well, traditionally, that's how that worked. So, you know, um, that's how those responses have always happened. But it's it's not really possible to do it like that now. We're, we're in a mess. What so, if we um, I hope I hope that gives an idea of what yarning is. <laughs> like what yarning is not just a conversation and all these kinds of things. It's, um, you know, you're in a state of deep listening with, you know, the others, human and non-human around you and the environment. It's, it's all, you know, these inputs coming in. Uh, yeah. What, what if, what if, uh, Tyson, we need to, for our, I mean, your title of your book is how indigenous thinking can save the world. And, and what yeah. you're, what you're articulating is saying, well, you know, this is how, this is how it would have been done or how it could be done in smaller scales, yeah. but we can't scale that now. So we're, we're, we're fucked or do we have to learn, do we have to learn how to scale it? I mean, we, if it, if it requires a multiplicity of small scale units in dialogue and in relationship where there are enough localized systems of trust because yeah. trust in large-scale systems that are not really embedded in people's landscape or realities become uh, more and more difficult for people to trust. That's, that's not allowed. It's, it's just not allowed. So we, we can't even talk about it. Look, that's what, that's what Cuba, that's what they do in Cuba. Hmm. And you're not allowed to do that. So, I mean, you could try doing it in your community, but you pretty much very quickly find yourself cut off from the rest of the world and there'd be embargoes and sanctions and bloody yes exactly uh, there'd be agents coming in and paying kids to throw bricks through windows and and mm. pretty much wreck the joint um exactly you know and they, there would be like a lot of pressure to starve you out threaten you out uh, kill you so well, you, what's you happening just, now you, you can't if do that, you, that that's finished you, that, you there's no decision tree way there where you can go but check this one out though mm. what if you um what if you had like this like uh, social credit system like the Chinese have got and you've got uh, you combine that with the Internet of Things that rolled out last year, you know, uh, with like 40 billion devices, I think, um, you know, sensors in real time picking up every aspect of physical reality and only massive servers being being created to store all that data. And then your AIs are getting really fat grazing on that data, you know, so what if, what if you've got like a system of computational power, like a, a like a metaverse, like a landscape, you know, you're creating like that. And, um, and, and so therefore in real time, you've got something that has the capacity 
to simulate the computation power of a landscape and tell everyone what they're supposed to be doing and then tailor that to you and just like pop that out for you there in your pot and then and this is what you're going to eat this is what you're going to do like that yeah yeah that'll work that could work i mean for a while unfortunately all these devices require rare earth metals to function and um they're called freaking rare for a reason um you know most of them are sitting under um the lands of african people who are you know <laughs> it's like whoops oh there's a war there all of a sudden well mm. it's just must be ancient tribal conflicts that's they've just always been killing each other there, there we go there's a war there oh we better dig underneath them there and get all that we got to extract everything from africa anyway let's get all these rare earth metals hey the good news is that they're uh, getting them from australia now they're um they're doing that on aboriginal land now uh, extracting yeah. and also refining the rare earth metals here too they're going to be doing that which is good because you know china can't it produces radioactive waste the process of refining rare earth metals for your phone and your computer i'm getting your brand i'm getting your brand of humor now um, yeah so it does take like i mean you've got a good three thousand years half-life on that one you got to store it somewhere so um you know it, yeah well this uh, aboriginal land that's a good place we'll, we'll dig him up there refine it there store all the radioactive waste there so you know thank you aboriginal australia and that's what's going to help kick australia's economy that can down the road for a bit longer which is pretty cool um yeah so maybe we'll have this in the net of things that there must you so with all of that rare earth metal in australia and everything else and abundant places to store the radioactive waste here then you'd probably be able to kick that you'd probably be able to make that work for a few decades maybe two yeah. decades maybe so that, two decades it shows maybe the two. because it's still only yeah. half the people on the planet who have access to a device even yet mm. to go on the internet so you know so that's gonna have to double as well and but i think you know once you get all them little nano <laughs> sensors everywhere get that sorted out every single aspect of physical reality then um why why do you need land when you can have a digital twin of land and mm. you know you can you can do it that way bring on the metaverse make it happen you know it doesn't have to just not just for a meeting room mm. like zuckerberg's doing like you know making a little jedi council online or something there's the meeting room just the whole thing everything that tree there everything that's it. you get the digital twin there it'll all be good everything's gonna be fine ah thanks <laughs> feels so much more relieved after that yeah man silicon valley's gonna that, say that except there's except i don't know where you're gonna get yeah yeah for us the only problem is the sand then because you get you know you get yep there's all this infrastructure that needs to come with that and that requires sand like most of the building materials are sand for the concrete you know and we've run out of terrestrial sources of that so now we're scraping the seabed well we have lots so of we don't have to worry so much about rising sea levels because that'll take ages mm. with the global warming you've got to worry more about just the coastlines just sort of slumping into the sea as you dig out all the sand to build more buildings all around the coast <laughs> to house the massive servers and server farms and server metropolises that are going to manage all this data um you know for the ais to do you your uh, sense making for you you know tyson thank you. i actually one of my new favorite phrases about ai is uh having ai an image of ai grazing on big data 
something like yeah. that. There's some image there that um, that's going to stick with me. But it's, it's hard. It's hard to be born in the '70s and have been a kid in the '80s, mm. um, and and not see Pac-Man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you you highlight something really important, right? I think this came up in our conversation and a few of them, but this idea of this whole technocratic agenda, right? Which, I mean, people can ascribe a nefarious elite to purporting it or perpetuating it, and yet yeah. it seems to be more so an emergent property of the system, like a, like ever more control, painting a utopic portrait mm. of, like you just said, a sort of, here's your customized meta reality for you. But then I asked the question too, is like, what problem is that trying to solve, right? Um, I, I, I lost about. sound. Oh, you lost sound. Yeah. So um, if you can hear me, just nod quick. I don't know if uh, you can hear us now that you're back in, Tyson. Yeah, okay, I got gotcha. So the, the, the question I was, I was <clears throat> framing for with Ian was that one thing that I took from your story is that our, our all our actions have consequences, right? I mean, mm. you shooing the bats away there's consequences for other people that may be unintended and, yeah. and and what's very unique about this pandemic as far as i see is that it's a global event where we're trying to have a global response that has a vast array of unintended consequences that we're starting mm. to see because we're taking yeah. all these actions from shutting down airports to mass vaccinations to how we're you know the the way in which we're responding on online and media censorship to try to stop uh people from speaking uh, certain truths or off are not truths, but we're taking all these actions all around and uh, all these consequences are revealing really rich information to us saying like, mm -hmm. these are the consequences of doing this. And, mm -hmm. you know, often with human beings is that we, you know, I, I noticed that you have this articulation about um, uh, it was uh, respect, connect, reflect, and then direct right mm. As sort of like this indigenous approach whereas the other way is you're saying you know mostly the non-indigenous way is first direct and then after yeah. you direct you're like oh shit that didn't work okay let me reflect on yeah. why it didn't work and then after yeah. it didn't work then you you know you go and you try to connect <clears throat> ask and say oh sorry we did this but can you know how are you feeling about it or why and then finally yeah. you get to the point of respecting and saying wait you know what my actions really do have consequences let's try to listen mm. to this, mm. right mm. and so rather than always going through the same barreling ahead approach now we have an opportunity at the very least to say, okay, what has been the consequences of this? And let's not fall into amnesia. Let's take a different approach to say, how do we listen more deeply and know what the consequences are mm. of trying to mm. have global scale actions? It seems like it would be a wise thing to do. Um, and we need to take the time to do it. And I feel mm. that that engenders trust amongst people. If we yeah. don't do it, the bridge or the divide gets further and further where we just don't trust that people are listening. Yeah. Well, look, not just people, but your your context, your your environment, your landscape, that sentient landscape, you need to respect that. You need to be able to listen. And, you know, I can't criticize elders, but basically what the elders did in this case with that bat story was a very, was a disrespectful um, public health response. You know, it's like, you know, so there's this problem spiritually. These bats are there. There's a blockage of energy. It's making the elders sick, respiratory stuff. Uh, so we move the bats, you know, and then that that helps the elders across an entire city, a big city, you know. Now, that's a city response. That's a metropolitan response. Mm -hmm. 
And that's a public health response of, well, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of Aboriginal people and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of elders, you know. So it's kind of appropriate if you're doing public health and you're trying to scale it for a lot of people as one group. But, you know, um, since I've, I've had a long time, I've had over a decade to think about this, and my thought in the end, what I know to be true, you know, from sitting with those bats and with all the other things, stories that come out of that, with the eel, eel story and platypus story and everything else, sitting with that over time, I started to see that oh, those bats were there for the old people. Those bats came to help. They, they were there for the respiratory illness because the fat, you know, the fat from fruit bats um in that season is that's medicine that's respiratory illness medicine so people will catch a bat you know when they see the yellow flowers in the trees people will catch a fruit bat cook it and eat the fat if they have asthma for example mm. you know or allergies or any respiratory problem so flu pneumonia anything like that the fat from the fruit bats help that so all those bats were gathering there for those old people and saying, yeah, you know, we're sharing our bodies with you. We, we want to give you this fat, this medicine. So the bats were the medicine and the public health response from my community was to chase the medicine away. Mm. You know, so they weren't the cause. They weren't the cause of the problem. You know, they were a symptom um, of the problem of people living in a stagnant system that could not deal appropriately with floodwaters. You know, so you need to you need to pay attention to your system. And that's that first step of respect. And what is respect? You know, it's not deference or anything like that. It's not politeness. It's it's simply awareness. Respect is just awareness of being in a state of awareness of, you know, being able to inhabit the ontologies, the ways of being you know, of all of the entities in the landscape around you, being able to sit yourself down, you know, in that story. And I guess it's it's narrative that does it. It's that that's what yarning is. It's a way of allowing you to not just empathize, but just to completely inhabit that other point of view of the world. You know, so you sit in that. And that's how we're supposed to communicate across species and with the landscape and across very different people. Uh, with very different ideologies and <laughs> all that sort of thing. Um, and it's it's not just steel manning their position, like, you know, you see with a lot of the Stoics that are kicking around in the heterodox sort of community and the mm -hmm. sense-making community and stuff like that. It's not just steel manning their position. Like, you got to be able to sit alongside and really in that, like, just be with them for a minute and, um, you know, have a, enjoy a conviviality together where you can you know, do more than just empathize. You have to be in relation and in right relation with them. And that's that first step of respect. Because then once you've done that respect, then you can connect. And connect is, is, is an exchange of knowledge. You know, connect is, you know, establishing a permanent relationship where, you know, what you build together, the combinations that you do of different stories together, that sits in that relation between you you know um and you have a web of those relations and they all connect up so you can actually you know really complexify a system in beautiful ways that way 
you know, and then, then you can do your thinking. That's when you start thinking and looking at your metrics, you know, not before that. So that's the reflect part. You, you start thinking it through and then finally you act. So, you know, respect, connect, reflect, direct. That's how uh, mum Doris says it anyway. I say, I say spirit, hard head, hands. Mm, beautiful. Yeah. Thanks Tyson. You know, I, I can't help but wonder as well to apply that understanding to, to COVID and to the virus time that, you know, again, at the at the risk of not trying to, I don't know what the word is, like insert a sort of narrative or, or sentience in a way, but not not grant sentience. Mm. But this whole sense of there was early days of this uh, coming upon us, right? That one, the, the Australian wildfires were massive as you mm. know, they were sort of worldwide news at the time, January, I think of 2020. Right. And it was soon after that, really, early, you know, February into March that the COVID really sort of became the global pandemic, right? And mm, mm. by listening to the land there and applying this understanding, you know, I, I hear I hear the land choking, right? I hear the land unable to breathe. Um, I mean, I felt like devastated by, I think, you know, the news report said a billion animals perished, right? Or something mm. within, in the wildfires there. And um, just last summer here, there was a heat wave, you know, the, the most unprecedented ever. And they said mm. something about a billion sea animals perished, right? And mm. that, and that as well. And so that level of listening to the land for me says that, seen from that lens, the the, the oncomingness of coronavirus. Yeah. Think of it less as a, as an interruption of regularly scheduled programming or, mm. or human triumphalism, but more as a deep uh, invitation to slow down and pause mm. and to listen, right? Suddenly the medicine. Well, look, the yeah. Yeah. So the, the 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 fires, you know, you want wildfires. Um, that's that's just the rash, mm. and you can put ointment on it if you want. It makes it itch a bit less, you know. And so you measure those metrics. It's like how itchy was it before I put the ointment? How itchy was it now? Mm. You know, how red was it? It's pretty damn red now. It's just speckles. That's pretty good. You know what I mean? It's it's the wrong metrics. Mm. So you're looking at you know you know X billion native animals died you know x thousand houses destroyed x thousand x hundred human lives lost and then the next season it's like well we've, we've saved x thousand native animals we've saved this many we rebuilt this many houses you know <laughs> we prevented this many deaths you know you you've got these little metrics that you measure but i don't measure it like that because it's just the rash i couldn't give a shit about the rash i want to sort out this candidal infection in my gut Mm. you know you because the, the, and then you won't get the rash anymore you know so that those fires already happened like in the year before the 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 year before the flames the fires were already happening mm. and they were they started you know and they started probably yeah started years before that on wall street uh -huh. so weirdly in in the u.s on wall street this happened because you've got um uh members of your financial industry there buying up the water rights all along the murray darling basin and changing restricting the flows um you know etc etc there were microclimate changes all along that uh the murray river and the darling river um and this is a big codfish story so that song line is is codfish and you know so there's a, a fellow his name changes at different parts of the river depending on the bioregion but um, basically, it's the same fellow, and he end, ends up chasing the, the codfish all the way down those rivers. And where that songline ends is right down at the sea, 
at the bottom of Australia and South Australia there. And it goes across to a place called Kangaroo Island. And that's where the fellow went back up uh, to Sky Camp, you know, from there. Uh, he threw his spear into the sea and then he went up. Um, so, yeah, the changes in microclimate there, the terrible things that were going on with the water that was caused like directly by uh, Wall Street financiers buying up all the water rights um, along the river there. Um, that resulted in about a year before the bushfires, a massive uh, fish die-off, you know, of the codfish and all the connected species, you know, to that. So we see the codfish dying, we see the yellow bellies dying, and all of the species that came out of that original big giant codfish in the story, you saw all of those millions and millions of fish in a spontaneous die-off. And that was the spark. It was already burning then, and you could see it burning. And you were like, yep, all right. Well, next time when this season comes around again, Kangaroo Island's going to be on fire. And you know that is, you know, but that's just the rash. Mm. If you want to stop the fires, you're not like, uh, you know, doing preventative measures and making fire breaks and, you know, um, doing. Uh, so we have public fire safety measures that we impose on communities, which is usually like really expensive things that people have to do around their properties and, uh, with their building licenses and all that sort of thing. Um, and, and, you know, oh, you get fines for not clearing your gutters of leaves and all that sort of thing. But that's not what, that's not how, that's just treating the rash. Um, it doesn't prevent the fires. Um, we actually need to, um, you know, all of the communities along that river need to all jump on big boats and head over and occupy Wall Street and drag these fellas out of their buildings and sort of... Um, sit them down <laughs> and give them a stern talking to. Mm. I almost advocated violence then, didn't I? Yeah. Well, you said stern talking to, so that's good. I mean, yeah. you, you bring up a really good point. Thank you for that, which is um, bringing in context, right? Like, I mean, you have this um, terminology in the book, high context cultures and low context cultures and how yeah. I, I really actually appreciate you kind of demonstrated, <clears throat> I think what a high context understanding would be and looking mm. at that situation, whereas the dominant culture and the, even the way I was speaking was sort of that this, you know, just erupted and and that that's the story. And you're saying, well, wait mm. a second, actually, if you, you know, show all the relational web, now mm. you can start to see a better understanding of, quote, you know, what's what's going on. And so, yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd love maybe if you just to articulate a little bit further what you mean by our, what high context and low context means and why that's necessary even to apply to a pandemic. Yeah. Well, I've got a few minutes. I've got like five minutes, so I've got to go to the next thing, um, next event. So, yeah, you, your high-context culture is its quite simply what I said before. It's that um, the respect of having awareness, you know, within within uh, being able to see the context. So if you speak, if anybody speaks Korean, then your grammar will make you like that because you have to put the context at the start of the sentence. Mm. You know, a Korean kid's going to look at a – I mean, so you, when you were a little kid, you know, someone show you a picture and you go, ah, oh, it's a duck. Next, next card. <laughs> um, yep, camel. Yep, llama. You know, you're going through. You're acing the test. Mm. You know, but the Korean kid's stuck on the picture of the duck because he's going. Well, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a lake. You know, in a forested region, it looks like it's um, mm. it's uh, it's late spring. Um, there's, <laughs> it's about, it's probably early afternoon. And um, I imagine there's this kind of fish in there and there is a duck swimming <laughs> there. You know what I mean? That's a high context culture. 
you know um that's high context cultures is most of the people on the planet mm. you know there is a small minority of people western educated industrialized rich democratic on the planet who've been um you know horribly twisted and mutated through various social institutions to focus on the duck and that's a low context culture it's not because of some biological difference how they were born or because of the melanin content of their skin which is freaking irrelevant um you know it's it's just the way they've been mutated and there's you know there's there's people in every, africa everywhere on the planet have been mutated that way uh through those systems and institutions and um and so they think in that low context way but uh yeah people who are thinking high context way there is still the majority of people on the planet it's just that uh, most of the institutions and economies that are dominating the globe are built for that minority of low context cultures mm. so you're having the people the economies and the systems that are running the big picture are the ones that are least uh capable of big picture thinking <laughs> unfortunately yeah or at least the kind of the kind of integrative um thinking and holistic not in the pat way but in the way that you refer to in the book which is much more embedded um just a yeah. last a last piece i before we got on the call i was reading your book and you know there was one exercise that you had where you indicated that five different kinds of mind and you associated with them with the mm. finger right and and, and the pinky was the kinship mind and you thought of the child. And then the second one was mm. the story mind and that was with the mother. And then the third one was the dreaming mind and that was with the father. And the fourth one was the nephew sort of relationship. And that was the um, ceremonial or the ancestor mind. And the fifth one is the, the big picture of the pattern mind. And see, it worked. It kind of just kind of mm. got in, in me. And, and then yeah, you yeah. said, you know, close your hand into a fist and then see what comes to you. And when I closed my hand into the fist and, and felt all these five minds coming together, a, a deep emotion came up for me of, um, wow, what would it be like to look at this situation that's happening around the world right now through these different minds, you know, with the, not just as the relations of the mother and the child and the father and the nephew and, you know, like all those different relationships, but the different forms of mind that need to come together so that we can really see how this is affecting the whole prism and respond from mm. that place. That's the invitation it brought to me. And, and as you said, it's not something that you can pat yourself on the back and be like, yeah, we got that real fast, right? Yeah. Or it gives you a quick answer. We have to learn a different way of doing it, right? Well, the, the answer is in these DAOs, these distributed autonomous organizations, but, um, somehow to do that without a blockchain um wow. the idea That's of the blockchain, next, the next call blockchain, blockchain is, a, is a way of of getting us to where we need to be but without trust and unfortunately if you skip that step <laughs> then you miss the respect part um right. so we need to blockchain without a blockchain um mm. it, it is is where we need to get to if you want to think about that but the the best way to get there is to ignore uh, it's just to land lightly on heuristics. Be like Tarzan swinging from vine to vine with your little, you know. So this one, the idea of having those five things was to subvert the idea of having five things. Because <laughs> then I asked you at the end, like, no, just make it a fist. Yeah, yeah it's one thing. So ah! the, 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 one, basically, the one word. Yeah, oh, and, and there, isn't a, there isn't a word for it. And, and what's the message there that you get with that it's just like 
okay, yeah, th there's no message that I'm going to carry forward and it's always going to be the same. It's like keep moving with it. So I'm writing next week, I'm writing the sequel to Sand Talk. Mm. And publishers never go with your working title. But my, my title for it is, um, they won't go with it. They'll say something, they'll, they'll make it something aw awesome, like, yay, we saved the world or whatever. But my actual uh, title for this book is um, uh, 12 Ways to Avoid Lists in the Anthropocene. <laughs> and <laughs> avoid people in their lists. Anybody who thinks they've got an answer <laughs> or, or a solution, <coughs> even if it's elders saying, go and scare them bats away, boy, <clears throat> they're probably wrong. Anyway, although something did just happen with my respiratory system just now when I tried to say that. So don't freaking listen to me because uh, that would be some aspect of nature that was just saying, yes, but. <laughs> and can we stop this yes and bullshit? Yes, but is important. <laughs> yes, but makes you think for a minute. So um, anyway, I'm couple of minutes late for the next thing now well thanks i'm gonna get going bros yeah big big appreciation to you and your time today um yeah i really feel grateful for where we wondered and wandered and uh yeah um appreciate the title of your book too i'm uh, sure it'll be a big seller <laughs> sweet and <laughs> thanks for uh bros thanks for piping us in too mm. thank you tyson there at the start that was appreciated yeah yeah Thanks. Uh, that, uh, that, that's what allowed me to tell, to share that story. Mm. I was being brought in uh, the right way with that. So, mm. yeah, thank you. Thank, thank you. you All the best.